Father, we thank you for this time to hear from your scriptures, Lord. We thank you, Father, that what you have written thousands and thousands of years ago still speaks today. It's still relevant. It's still sharp, living, and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, bone and marrow, judging the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Lord, we are in awe at what your word is and what it does to build us up and build your church. I pray now, Lord, for, for help to preach your son Christ, to preach your scriptures clearly and faithfully. We ask, Lord, that the unfolding of your words now would give much light, much understanding to us. Help us to go from being simple-minded about what you've said to understanding and obedient and loving. Father, help us to apply what we hear. Help us to see Jesus. And all these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We all have strengths and weaknesses, physically, emotionally, mentally. Think about this. If someone were to describe your strengths, if somebody was talking behind your back, and they weren't saying bad things, they were describing your strengths, what would they say about you? What would they say about you? It's interesting that weaknesses, they're usually pretty annoying and they come right on the surface. If somebody has a weakness and they get up close to your life, pretty soon you spot it. But strengths, sometimes a strength takes a little time to understand what else someone excels at or what they're good at or what they're strong in. She's strong in her compassion. Who am I talking about? She's a member of our church. She's strong in her compassion, and yet equally strong in her listening skills, her street smarts, her heart to empathize, and her ability to juggle multiple tasks at once. Who is this? This is Mary Catherine. She, she works in the office faithfully every week. Who is this? This is another member of our church. He is strong in his attention to detail, his critical thinking, yet he's equally strong in his ability to focus. He's strong in his physical stature, his height. He's strong in his ability to make decisions with an eye to biblical faithfulness. Who are we speaking of? Samuel Clintock. Leaving the church office for a moment, see if you can guess this ancient person just by hearing a few of their strengths. And when I say ancient, he's no longer alive, so don't, don't think that it's someone in our church right now who's ancient. We only have seasoned saints here. We don't have ancient saints here. He's strong in his physical fitness. He typically excels at eating healthy kosher food. He's strong in his determination to win. He has resolve. He's strong in courage. He defeats lions barehanded and steals honey from bees. Who are we talking about? Samson. Samson. He is our focus this morning. We're going to be studying part of his life. We're going to be noting his strengths and weaknesses. But there's an even mightier actor in the chapters we're going to read today, 
And that's God himself. To see what I mean, turn with me to Judges chapter 14. Judges chapter 14 and 15. This is found on page 214 in the Bibles provided. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, feel free to take that one with you. As you're turning there, just a brief note of context. So in the book of Judges, we see the progressive deterioration of Israel. It sinks lower and lower and lower. And we've still got four more chapters after Samson's life of chaos and anarchy and destruction and pain. Last week, though, we looked at Samson's birth. This week, we'll look at really the midpoint of his life, the main, some of the main stories of his life. And then next week, Lord willing, next Sunday, we'll look at how everything comes to a close and how he comes to die. But Samson is a judge, and the Lord has raised up judges, military judges, to deliver his people from their enemies. So we get to read of Samson today, and this is a a fast-paced narrative. It reads almost kind of like a movie script, but it's even better. So let's read all of 14 and all of 15, okay? 20 verses apiece. Let's read. Chapter 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives, or among all our people, that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, The Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman. And she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them. And they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there. For so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you, if you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast, and find it out. Then I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle, that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. 
Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down thirty men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. After some days at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go in to my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught three hundred foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Etam. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. Then three thousand men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that had caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, And with it he struck one thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramoth-Lehi. And he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and said, 
You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out of it. When he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore the name of it was called in Hakore. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines twenty years. a lot of verses. What are we to do with passages like that? I mean, if you have a daily Bible study routine and, and you're wiping the sleep from your eyes and, and the section God has for you that day is somebody killing people with a donkey jawbone, how's that going to help your parenting in the next few hours? How's that going to help you when you've got a test that you're studying for? What do we do with passages like this? I'm so thankful that God has told us what to do with passages like this. Direct quote from the Apostle Paul, Romans 15, 4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So it's my prayer that as we study these two chapters today, you would find endurance and encouragement and hope and instruction. It's really there, and my prayer is hopefully to show you that. The way we find endurance and hope, encouragement, instruction in the Old Testament is we go on a mission after looking for Christ. That's where we find hope and encouragement. All of the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. All of the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament, and vice versa. The New Testament sheds light on what was happening in the old, and it brings it to fulfillment. So I pray that we see Christ in this passage today. If you're taking notes, let me give you just a laser, quick, short, concise sentence that captures the main idea of all what we just read. The main idea. Here it is. Samson is and is not Israel's promised holy deliverer. Samson is and is not Israel's promised holy deliverer. There's some deliberate tension there. He is and he's not. The primary effect of that main idea is to actually create a longing within us for a holy one who is the ultimate deliverer and fulfillment, namely Jesus. But a hinge from this main point that directly, squarely looks you in the face for your life today in 2019 is this. In this passage, we get to marvel at how God still works through those who are not yet fully and finally sanctified. We get to marvel... Let me just pause there and say, if you don't marvel at the fact that God would work through people who are not fully and finally sanctified, then you're not going to marvel that he would ever use you. None of us are completely sanctified until we get to heaven, and we're glorified, and yet God still works through us, and that's what we see him doing here in Samson. Now, with a passage this large, if, if we want to try to keep our bearings straight, uh, 
I think the best way we could walk through these two chapters today would really just to split everything up into three nice, neat, tidy boxes, okay? Because everything's messy in these chapters. So if we kind of put everything into three buckets, three boxes, here's what it would be. We've got before the wedding, during the wedding, and after the wedding. Before, during, and after the wedding. So verses 1 through 9, that's before the wedding. Verses 10 through 20 of chapter 14, that's during the wedding, which lasted that whole week. And then all of chapter 15 is after the wedding. And the wedding is kind of this pivotal event that all kinds of domino effects fall out from in a rapid succession. And filling up these three buckets, these three boxes, if we're going to start to learn something from this passage today, what is it that we could put in each one of those boxes where we could walk out of this place and know the scriptures better and live differently? Well, I think what we could do is we could look at the strengths and weaknesses of Samson in each one of these realms, and we could look at the strengths and weaknesses of God. And just as a full disclosure, there's nothing to write down for God's weaknesses, so really just strengths. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at before, during, and after this wedding, and we're going to look at strengths and weaknesses of Samson in each one of these phases and also the strengths of God in each one. This is a a fascinating text. Samson goes from really unknown to the Philistines to being their arch enemy by the time we close the scenes. So here we are, the first section, that first box, before the wedding, verses 1 through 9. Here's what we learn about Samson. If you wanted to summarize some of his strengths that we see in these verses... He's physically strong, i.e. the lion that he kills. He's courageous, that honey that he takes out of the lion. And he seems to have a strong appearance of holiness. But we'll see in a moment some of the secrets that he's keeping betray the fact that it's really just an appearance of strong holiness. It's not genuine. Before we look at his weaknesses, though, Let me tell you what I learned from this passage and what I think you could learn as well for your own life from this section before the wedding. Here it is, captured in a sentence. My concern for holiness shows, especially in times I think that no one else knows. That was not supposed to rhyme, but it just, that's how it was in the notes. My concern for holiness shows especially when I think no one else knows. That's a truth for my life to take in and contemplate and believe. That's a truth for you today. We see that in Samson's life right here before the wedding. Let me show you that. I want to show you that actually by looking at his weaknesses. Okay. So we first can look at some of his public holiness right there in verse 1. Verse 1 Samson went down to Timnah. Timnah is a border town between the tribe of Dan and the the Philistines. At Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. He came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. And now we don't know if this is love at first sight or just lust, but he says, now get her for me as my wife. 
This is actually a weakness. This is a weakness because it's all about his eyes. It's just what he sees. If you remember the theme throughout the book of Judges, everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. But he has another weakness in that he dishonors his parents. Did you see that in verse 3? They try to reason with him. Is there not a, another woman? I mean, yeah, she's beautiful, but there's beautiful women in Israel. Samson, what are you doing? His parents would have known about the Mosaic law that prohibited the Hebrews from marrying these foreign women, Deuteronomy 7.3. This was already a problem in Judges chapter 3, but stronger than his parents' voice and stronger than the law of God was the operating principle of his two eyes. We know that because right there in verse 3, towards the end of verse 3, but Samson said to his father, Get her for me. Why? For she is right in God's eyes, in my eyes. There's some low-hanging fruit here, though, for parents and grandparents. Contend for the truth, even if your children and grandchildren want nothing to do with it. These parents know how strapping and brawny their son is. They know they have no chance if he gets angry. He's kind of like a bull in a china shop through this whole passage. But there's some low-hanging fruit right here. Parents, grandparents, contend for the truth. They were trying to bring the word to him, even though he didn't want anything to do with it. Obviously, they can't force him to do what he should do, but they can at least declare it. They have declarative authority in his life. I wonder if you as a parent or grandparent or aunt, uncle, family member, realize how much you can be used for God just to simply speak truth, try to reason with those who are straying from truth. But now we get to some private weaknesses. That that was public. Here's private weaknesses of Samson. Verse 5, they go down to this vineyard, which let's pause. A Nazarite who's not supposed to be around anything, fruit of the vine. He, he probably shouldn't be in this vineyard. We don't know what he's doing. We know he's separated from his parents in verse 5. And behold, a grape came bouncing down the vineyard fields and hit his toe. Nope. A young lion came towards him roaring. The roar of the lion. This is where we see that first adrenaline rush of the passage. So I saw a lion this week, no joke, here in Texas. I was with my daughter Eleanor. We were at Cabela's, a beautiful stuffed lion on display. They had a safari section. I saw a lion a few weeks ago when I was with Jim and Mary Shipwash, members of our church. Jim has a beautiful trophy room in his house, all kinds of wild game he's killed. There's a lion there. I didn't really have my adrenaline, my heart pumping when I saw those a few weeks ago and this week. But I did see a lion in real life one time in Texas at the San Antonio Zoo. And the lion was playing tug-of-war. And there happened to be a lot of military personnel that day. And they let five or six guys grab one end of a rope. And it went through the cage. The lion had the other. They had two knots there so that nobody gets pulled in all the way. The rope would stop. And when they released the lion to pull, the lion overpowered these five men. Crazy adrenaline here. 
let's not just read what happened. Let's imagine if we were there so that the scriptures come alive to you. Don't read the scriptures in a dull, boring way. This really happened. The way that you watch movies and you get into it, you get carried away, your facial expressions, your emotions, the way you talk and get excited, the way you watch TV shows, the way you stream things on your phone. I know many of you get passionate about other things, but when you read God's Word, somehow you just kind of read it. This actually happened. Now, I know this is an adrenaline moment because in the year 2006, I went to Kenya and I went on a safari. We did a mission trip for two weeks, and on the last day of our mission trip, we went to a safari. The little, little villa we stayed at, that morning I got into the shower. There was a tarantula in the shower. I almost jumped out of the shower. That was adrenaline moment number one. Number two, we're sitting on the back porch before we get to go on the safari. Out of nowhere, howler monkeys scream and swirl and come up to the back porch running with their arms flailing, and they start taking people's backpacks. They didn't get mine, and they ran off. We were freaked out. I'm used to seeing dogs running around, but not monkeys. They can get up in trees. But that wasn't the most adrenaline I felt that day. I was a high school graduate. I remember every detail of this trip. We're on safari. We're, we're going through the little dusty roads in our 4 by 4 We've got our trail guides. They have weapons. We're just taking a bunch of pictures. And then we come across a little pride of lions. And I say little, there were about 10, 12 of them. They were yawning, licking their paws, rolling around. And I was still terrified because there was no cage. If they wake up and come at me, it would be just like the Swartzell's dog, Felix. I would be afraid. But this is a lion. And the lion comes at Samson and he has nothing in his hands. He's barehanded. But you know who's stronger than any lion? This is not too difficult for the Lord. Look at what it says there, verse 6. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, although he had nothing in his hand. really doesn't matter. If it's the Lord, it doesn't matter. He tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. Modern day translation, it's as if you go to the grocery store and get a rotisserie chicken and you're ripping it up at the kitchen counter. He tore up the lion barehanded. But, privately, he doesn't tell his parents. He doesn't tell them. This was bad for a Nazarite to do. Nazarites weren't allowed to be around dead bodies. So we get caught up in the emotion of this moment. Wow, he just saved his own life because God helped him there, which is good. But we forget the context of chapter 13. What he should do in this moment, tell his parents he should go, shave his head, present an offering at the temple. But he doesn't do that. Just as we get caught up in the excitement of a passage like this and forget about holiness, Samson seems to do the same thing. Chapter 6, or verse 6, second half of verse 6, he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. He knows mom and dad are all about reminding him of truth. If he tells them about this lion episode, they're going to tell him, son, 
That's amazing, but you now need to shave your head, and we need to restart your vow again. There's some low-hanging fruit here, application. If you consider yourself a child or children, teenager, if you have living parents, do you keep secrets from your parents? Is there anything you're afraid to tell them? Children, listen to me. If, if any of you keep secrets from your parents, that's bad. Samson wants to keep a secret that he's not being holy. It gets worse, though, because he takes some honey out of the lion when he comes back later. And he keeps another secret from them. So if you, if you start keeping secrets from your parents, you might be continuing down that path because it's going to get easier to do. Don't do that. Let's keep going. So he's got this weakness because he's being deceptive to his parents. There's even more weakness there in verse 7. He's just driven by his appetites. He goes and talks with a woman, which is pretty good before you're going to marry her. She's right in his eyes all over again. That's the operating principle for him. So whether it's honey and the carcass of the lion, which not even a normal Israelite should go touch because that would be unclean food in the carcass of an animal. And I know some of you, you know, Bible scholars out there are thinking, well, maybe he didn't touch any carcass of the lion. He just got some of the honey. He touched nothing else, and he walked away, and it was pure honey. I think you know what you're doing in your interpretation when you do that. This was wicked for him to do. Not even a normal Israelite would go after this honey, and especially Samson as a Nazarite, but he does. Clearly, in all this, his concern for holiness shows, especially in the times he thinks no one else will notice. Where is God in all of this? God's listed there in verse 4 and verse 6. But in verse 4, his father and mother didn't know it was from the Lord. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistine. The he there is speaking of the Lord. That's how it fits. That's how it is grammatically. In other words, the Lord knows all the weaknesses of Samson and his strengths. And the Lord is working opportunities. His sovereignty is not stopped by Samson's weaknesses and sins. God will get glory. God tries to give him this wake-up call with a lion to show him how strong he is, Samson, physically, and how strong the Lord is, but also to wake him up to holiness. Remember, Samson was meant to be the one who goes and conquers the Philistines, not marry them, not cuddle up with them and make friends. He's a judge. Well, all this is not looking good before the wedding. How is it going to manifest during the wedding? This is verses 10 through 20. Here's a truth for us that we learn from Samson right off the bat. Here's a truth for us. During the wedding, we see it loud and clear. Here it is. Cultivating self-control is always wise. Without it, sin and grief will follow. Cultivating self-control is always wise. Without it, sin and grief will follow. You remember earlier in the service when we read our statement of faith that believers may fall into sin 
through neglect and temptation, whereby they grieve the Spirit, impair their graces and comforts, and bring reproach on the cause of Christ, and temporal judgments on themselves. Yet they shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. I love that we read that because Samson is that writ large. The book of Hebrews in chapter 11, verses 32 and 33, tell us that Samson, Gideon, Barak, David, all these mighty men, through faith they stopped the mouth of lions. So Samson's strong, but we're going to see his weakness. He lacks self-control. He lacks self-control really in the form of pride where he tells this riddle. Verse 10, we see that he's preparing a feast. The feast is the occasion for the riddle. And by the way, that word feast in the original wording is really the word for a drinking party. Again, even if he's not drinking, he's getting really, really close to confusing other people about his Nazarite vow. We don't know what he's thinking. We do know what he's thinking in verse 12. Samson said to them, and these are 30 guys brought by the Philistines. Maybe they're bodyguards. They're certainly not Samson's best friends. He says, let me put a riddle to you. He gives them a week to figure it out. This reminds me of going on those long road trips. You know what this is like when people play 20 questions and other games. They have a riddle. Those games are kind of fun when you figure it out or you say, okay, I give up, and they tell you. Imagine how annoying it is if they don't tell you the answer. And they taunt you. And they make a wager. And it's not just a road trip for a few hours. It lasts seven days. That's kind of like what's happening right here. And the wager here, change of clothes, garments, that might seem kind of like a weak, wimpy thing to make a bet on. But at this time, remember, like the story of Joseph back in, in Genesis, he gave changes of clothes to his brothers when they came from a long place. The story of Naaman, the leper in the Old Testament. Gifts are given of changes of clothes. These were expensive things. They couldn't just run to a department store or shop online. Expensive garments. You remember how when Jesus was crucified, they didn't tear his garment, they cast lots for it? In the ancient world, clothing was very, very valuable. It's still valuable today. But he makes this wager with clothing. And his riddle, if you think about it, is, is really challenging. For us, we already know the details. But imagine if you heard this for the first time. Out of the eater came something to eat. In other words, out of the devourer came food. Most people know animals, food only comes out two directions once they've eaten it. Either they vomit it up or it goes out the other direction. How could any of that ever be sweet tasting? So this is a real riddle. Out of the eater, the devourer, came something to eat. And out of that strong devourer, it actually came something sweet. And they're thinking, what is this? They can't figure it out, so they go to his wife, and they blackmail her. They betray her. But we see more of Samson's weaknesses here because he lacks self-control. Did you see what his wife does there in verse 16? She strikes him where it hurts. Verse 16, Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You don't love me. You put a riddle to my people. You haven't told me what it is. He's saying, look, I haven't even told my parents. I haven't told anybody. 
So if you say, I don't love you, well, you're saying, I don't even love my parents. Maybe she's saying, well, yeah. His lack of self-control is like Proverbs 25, 28, which says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. He's defenseless. No one can make you sin, but they can sure tempt you. No one is to blame for your sin other than your willing choice. And yet, yeah, there can be tempting circumstances. This again reminds us of that, of that truth, cultivating self-control. It's always wise. Without it, sin and grief follow. So right at the last moment, he tells her, because you remember if the bride is not happy, nobody's going to be happy at the wedding. He tells her. She tells those 30 companion bodyguard groomsmen guys. They reveal it at the last moment. And then we see another weakness of Samson, his lack of self-control. In rage, verse 19, he goes and he kills 30 men. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town, took their spoil, and gave the garments to those who told the riddle. Now, what are we to make of that? We understand the Spirit of the Lord coming upon somebody to protect them, to destroy a lion. Why would the Spirit of the Lord come upon him when he's angry and he wants to do harm to other people? Is God doing evil here? A few sermons back, we talked about why it was not evil to kill these foreign enemies. Go back our website, listen to that. It was the first sermon in Judges. Samson is told to destroy the Philistines. So if God happens to harness him at the moment where he's got sinful, rash anger at them, he's still accomplishing his purposes to destroy the Philistines. I like how Dale Davis, pastor, Presbyterian pastor, he said, when God delivers his people, he does not always dip his saving axe in Clorox and sprinkle them with perfume. To be delivered from evil will often be messy. This should give you hope, brothers and sisters. It gives me hope. God uses us even when we're not perfectly squeaky clean. Now, wait a second. If you take that as license to think holiness doesn't matter, you're missing it. This is why many of the books of the New Testament were written, to keep us in that tension between God uses us while we're sinful and undeserving, and yet we have to pursue holiness. That's what we see here. But his lack of self-control rushes upon these men and kills them. And then in hot anger, he goes back to his father's house, the end of verse 19. And then his wife is given away to his best man. Seems like a pretty wimpy deliverer. He's strong physically, but he's not leading any armies to go attack the Philistines. What is he doing? Again, that main idea, Samson is and is not Israel's holy deliverer. He seems again to disregard his Nazarite vow. Three times now. He killed a lion, he took honey out of the carcass, and he killed 30 guys. He's been around a lot of dead things. And again, he hasn't shaved his head and renewed his vow and gone to the temple and given sacrifices and praised the Lord and started his vow again. The narrator is showing us, as crazy as these life circumstances are, he doesn't care about holiness. 
Wow, that hits home, doesn't it? God, I don't really care about holiness right now because I'm so busy. Unexpectedly, this lion came upon me, this, this last-minute thing or this annoying thing. Or, Lord, I don't really care about holiness because I'm mad at that person right now, so I can do whatever I want. I'll be holy later. Samson's a lot like us. But now we get to that third section. We saw before the wedding, during the wedding. Now let's look after the wedding. After the wedding. This is all of 15. Here's a truth for us in this final section. After the wedding. Here's the truth. Nothing is as intoxicating as pursuing my own agenda because it rivals God's glory. Nothing is as intoxicating as pursuing my own agenda as it rivals God's glory. That's the truth we see happening in chapter 15. That's the danger even for our lives today. Now, Samson is very strong here. He shows strength of creativity with those firebrands. He seems to have a strong impulse for justice. Really, it's vengeance. He seems to be very strong in being resourceful. But he's got a lot of weaknesses here. A lot of weaknesses. He's consumed with vengeance. All throughout the scriptures, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So when he goes back to see his wife, he's got a young goat, which is kind of like bringing flowers. She can't be with him. In his anger, he decides, I'm going to take foxes, which the word there could mean a jackal or a fox, both animals, roughly 25, 30 pounds with long tails. Many think it's jackals because they traveled in packs, so it would be quicker and easier to get that many. But no matter how you slice it up, he had to take time to gather these, these animals, maybe have little pens and food for them, and he's, they think he's like a fox farmer now. But he takes them, he ties them to the pole. We don't know why he does two. Is it so that they'll run in a zigzag pattern? Is it because if one tail falls off, the other tail's still holding on? We, we don't know what, why he's doing this, other than he's just, vengeance is making him do some really irrational things. But they're creative. So his weakness here is he allows his own agenda, vengeance, to take over. Even when they kill his wife and her husband by fire, they take vengeance not upon Samson but for him. He gets even more personal. He takes it even more personally. Therefore, as you could imagine, holiness is even further from his mind. He ends up being unwilling to lead the people. In verse 11 there, 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock, and they said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done? In other words, Samson, why are you messing with them? They rule over us. And Samson said, As they did to me, so I've done to them. By the way, that's the same excuse they gave for why they were pursuing him. If your logic as a believer is ever, I'm doing this because they did this to me, do you see how that will never cease? That's a cycle that just keeps continuing and getting worse. So here's what happens. A final moment of great strength. Verse 15. 
right after the Spirit of the Lord breaks the flax, the ropes on him. Verse 15, he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. And it's as if the narrator wants us to see again, he's touching something dead. It doesn't just say he found a fresh jawbone of the donkey and struck a thousand men. It says he put out his hand and took it. Why the extra words? It's divinely inspired to show you he's not holy. He should have kept his vow after this moment. But he strikes a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. It's fresh, so it's not dry and brittle and would break easy. It's fresh, so it's strong. There may be some teeth in there. What a crazy weapon, just like we see all throughout the book of Judges. He strikes a thousand men. But did you notice what happens in verse 16 when he praises and sings a song? He doesn't praise God. It's just his own agenda. And then he drops the mic in verse 17. As soon as he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. He can't let anybody back home see the weapon he, he fought with because they would say, hey, you're a Nazarite. So he, he lets it go. And then the only time we see him pray to the Lord is right there in verse 18. God, you've given such a great salvation. Shall I now die of thirst? So part of his weakness is his own agenda makes him so selfish. And God shows his strength by even showing mercy to a sinner breaking open the rock, giving him water. Even there, he doesn't name the place after the Lord's provision. He names the place in Hakore, which a lot of Bible footnotes say, the spring of him who called. It's all about this spring of water that I called for. Me, Samson. He's just thinking about himself. So our final thought, what do we do with Samson? The tension is thick, he's flawed. He has flashes of faith. He cries out to the Lord, but his belief is mixed with so much unbelief. But all of this points to the gospel. In the passage Nathan read for us a few moments ago, you remember what Jesus did when he was bound? He simply spoke and knocked everybody to the ground. Way stronger than Samson. But he willingly gives himself up. Why would Jesus Christ the strongest man who's ever lived and the most holy give himself up. He did that because Jesus knows your strengths. He created you, but he knows your weakness. He knows that the fundamental weakness you have is that you're not right with God. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus, that is your greatest weakness. If you are a Christian, your greatest weakness is you're prone to wonder. But that's why Jesus gave himself up, so that he could be bound, go to a cross, not as a victim, but willingly he would die on the cross, shed his blood. Worse than the blood of that jawbone being swung around on the battlefield, Christ was whipped and beaten, flesh torn to where you couldn't even tell there was barely even human semblance. And he's on the cross pouring himself out. Because for Jesus, unlike Samson, holiness is the most important thing. And he pours himself out. He dies for all those who would ever turn away from their sin and trust in him. And then he rises from the grave. And then he ascends to the Father. And he says for that good news to be proclaimed. I don't know what your 
strengths are, but I know what your greatest weakness is. And I pray that you would see the remedy for that in Christ. Let's pray.